we've been in this series about uh, words to Lent by uh, during the season of Lent. This particular word is kind of different in that it really is a prayer. Uh, I'm, I know we haven't talked a lot about this during this series, but it's really today the word help is a confession of need. Now, sometimes we pray this word for ourselves, and sometimes we pray it for other people. Uh, when I was growing up, the church that I was a part of was um, one of those kind of churches where people actually talk back to you during the preaching. Amen. Yeah, right. And uh, that's exactly what would happen. And when I started preaching pretty young, I learned quickly that if the sermon is going well, people will say stuff like that. They'll say yes or amen, or sometimes it's really good. They'd be like, preach it, okay? Or that's right, or something like that. Well, I also learned that when it wasn't going very well, that there were certain people in the congregation, especially some of the uh, elderly folks there that were encouraging, they would say these words, help him, Jesus. <laughs> that's what they say, help him, Jesus. You ever heard this, Robbie? Yeah, many, many times. You didn't really want to hear that. <laughs> When you were preaching, but they were very good at saying it. So I knew immediately if it was going well and if it wasn't going well. Well, it's very interesting because we're always in a position in our lives to need help, but it's really weird how we don't always want to admit that we need help. Uh, a long time ago, back in uh, probably my late 20s, early 30s, I was supposed to pick a guy up from overseas he was landing in um, Tampa, and he was going to speak at a conference over on the beach in uh, St. Pete. He was the keynote speaker, so I went to pick him up at the airport. I'd heard about him. I'd never met him before. He was from England. And anytime someone talks with a British accent, I don't know about you, but I feel like my IQ is like lowered like 20 points, okay? They just sound really, really smart. And this guy was pretty well known. He was pretty popular at the time. And I wanted him to kind of think I was competent and smart. And the conference was on the other side of Tampa on the beach, probably 20, 25 minutes from the airport. And after we had been driving for a while, a long while, and I had turned around a couple of times, he kind of made note of it with a condescending little comment. He said, might we be lost? And I had to choose in that moment. Am I going to humble myself? Am I going to come clean? Am I going to admit that I need help, that I need you know, someone to assist me, that I can't bluff my way out of this, or will I just kind of keep going around in circles? I want you to know I decided to come clean. I only decided it for this message, actually. It's been 25 years, and I never did tell the guy that I was lost. Doesn't really matter now. He's dead as a door now, so it's okay. <laughs> but it feels good. It feels good to come clean eventually in your life, Right? It turns out there's a lot of reasons that I would not ask for help. One is I don't want to look weak. One is I may not want to be indebted to somebody and owe them something if they help me. Sometimes I don't even realize I need help or I'm afraid if I ask somebody for help, they'll kind of take over and then I'm going to lose control. There's one gender in our world in particular that has a hard time asking for help. Anybody want to take a guess which gender that is? Yeah. Help him, Jesus. Yes, 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 yes. Exactly. <laughs> one study revealed, get this, one study revealed in the age of the GPS, 
the global positioning satellite, the average man still drives 276 miles a year lost as a goose <laughs> just because we won't ask for directions. This problem was so acute that they actually did a project. It involved barbers, haircutters, who were teaching customers to talk about where they needed help in their life on the assumption, I guess, that some men will only do so if you point a sharp metal object at their head. It turns out we literally need to learn to ask for help. So to kind of level the playing field this morning, I thought that we would start this way. I thought at first that I would have everybody say, I need help. But let's be honest, that's a little vulnerable to say. So I'm just going to ask you, if you would, to turn to the person that's nearest to you, someone close by, a friend, a spouse, whatever, and look them in the eye and just say with the most loving, tender tone you have, you need help. Okay? Just tell them, okay? Here's the danger. Here's the danger. If you don't take that comment seriously, what started out in your life as a little problem can turn into a crisis. What started out as going over budget ends up putting you deep, deep, deep in debt. What started as just unresolved conflict ends in a bitter divorce. What started out as a problem, maybe a behavior, becomes an addiction. A problem with flirtation or temptation becomes an affair. A problem with procrastination turns into unemployment. Somebody who has a huge, like, sarcastic or negative attitude, you know, they never get help for it, and it turns into nobody wants to be your friend. The truth is, friends, it takes way more courage to say this little word, help, than it does to act like it doesn't exist or you don't need it. Now, it turns out, fortunately, that the fact that we need help is one of the great clues to our identity and our spiritual condition as human beings. In the Bible, my help or my helper is actually, believe it or not, one of the most used names for God. The book of Hebrews says, so we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. You heard the call to worship this morning referred to as God as our helper. Now here's the truth, this is kind of the central truth of this message today, why this little word is help, helpful and needs to be said, how it can change our life. We are made to live in continual dependence on God in the context of surrender and what one author calls interactive friendship. In other words, we should have a relationship with God of joyful dependence, which on one hand to some people looks like weakness, but which in fact really is life and strength. Now the alternative to this is to say, no thanks God, I can do this on my own. No thanks friend, I can do this on my own. And it leads, friends, to utter disaster in our lives. I want you to see this from the Bible. There's a wonderful story about Jesus early on in his ministry, in his life, where he is at a wedding. This story is such a picture of the kingdom of God breaking into everyday life that it actually became a favorite of artists over the centuries. Lots and lots of paintings and works of art have centered around this story. And it teaches us how to build our lives 
around constantly saying help to Jesus. All the time. Every day, if we need to. It's in the second chapter of the Gospel of John. And Jesus is just beginning, as I said, his ministry. And here's what it says. It says, On the third day a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me, Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to his servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where he had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests <laughs> have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. You know, I've done a lot of weddings. Sharabi's done a lot of weddings. And every wedding I have ever officiated at, something, maybe minor, but it's something goes wrong. Somebody forgets a line. Flowers are the wrong color. Somebody can't stop crying. Someone is late. I actually had a groom literally drive up in his Jeep as the processional was playing and the bridesmaids were going down the aisle. In fact, when my nephew... Uh, Wesley, who's now in his 30s, when he was just a little fellow, just a little guy, he was asked to be the ring bearer in a wedding. And I was performing the ceremony, and I'll never forget looking over at him, and he literally was as green as a cucumber, right before he just lost it on stage. It was a splashing experience for everybody. <laughs> See, everybody wants a perfect wedding, but usually, usually something, even minor, goes wrong. In this wedding, the problem is they have ran out of wine. In the ancient world, I want you to know this was a huge deal. When hospitality was a sacred obligation, to run out of wine meant shame and disgrace for the family, maybe, maybe even legal action. It would certainly ruin the memory of the wedding for the couple. And this kind of normal life setting becomes this interesting, very interesting setting for the first prayer that we ever find made to Jesus. Now, it's not really called a prayer, but in truth, that's what it is. They run out of wine. I want you to know today that whatever you're running out of in your life, you name it, patience, courage, strength, hope, today is a great day for you because you can ask for help. There is someone who wants to help you. Mary, the mother of Jesus, talks to him about this. Now, she doesn't say, and the text doesn't really say why she did this. Maybe she feels badly for the couple. Maybe she had some role in the wedding. Maybe like wedding coordinator or wedding planner. Maybe she goes to Jesus because Jesus had brought all these disciples with him. And maybe that's why they ran out of wine. I mean, let's be honest. The disciples were not terribly cooth guys. 
fishermen, tax collectors, you know, rebels, zealots. I mean, you have to think about this. They followed the most interesting man in the world. Maybe their motto was like, stay thirsty, my friends. <laughs> I worked on it all week just for that. <laughs> for whatever reason, <laughs> somebody said, help him, Jesus, yeah. <laughs> uh, I should never have told you people this. Okay. Whatever reason, Mary comes to Jesus, and she says these four words. They have no wine. Max Licato, uh, most of you know, is an author and pastor. He says that this is the first prayer to Jesus that's ever prayed. Let me say this to those of you who think that you're not a good prayer, that you don't pray very well, especially in front of people. This is the first prayer we have to Jesus, and it's from Mary, the mother of Jesus. And there is nothing fancy about this prayer. You know, many of you have prayers hung up in your home on plaques, on walls in your house. There's prayers like, the Lord is my shepherd, or our Father who art in heaven. Nobody is putting a plaque, they have no wine, <laughs> unless it's Napa Valley or they have serious issues, okay? What matters is prayer is not what you say, it's to whom you say it. What matters in prayer is not what you say, it's to whom you say it. Now this is the whole hinge of the story. Mary's choice to go to Jesus is crucial. Jesus didn't come to Cana to do a miracle. He's just hanging out. Jesus did what he did because Mary asked Jesus for help. Now, we know Jesus wasn't planning on this because of his response. He doesn't say, oh, I know they're out of wine, Mom. I'm going to jump right on it. He actually says, woman, what has this to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, let's be honest. That sounds a little cold. I mean, he doesn't even say mom. He says woman. <laughs> Del Bruner is a New Testament scholar. He says there's kind of a playful sparring going on here between him. Uh, the mom and the son, Jesus and Mary. He says, you have to kind of picture Mary nudging Jesus with her elbows saying, hey, son, they're out of wine. Very interesting what we say and don't say. I bought a car recently, like four or five months ago, and Robin and I, right afterwards, we were driving to the other side of Tampa, and you know how when you get a car, you're getting used to features on the car, and you're trying to see how it works, and they're also electric, you know, just electronics and gadgets and different things. And I discovered something crazy about my car that no one told me when I bought it. My car actually had two driver's seats. No, I'm serious. Everywhere we went that day, it was amazing. Even though I had the steering wheel, Robin was the one telling me what to do. Have any, any of you guys have that car? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's amazing. I didn't even know this existed. We're driving down the interstate, and she made the comment to me. She said, there's an exit coming up. This is the one we have to get to. I said, I know, I, I, I got it. And a few more minutes later, she said, listen, the exit's coming up. You need to get over. Now, I knew that I had plenty of time. At least I felt like I did. So I really didn't need her to say that to me again. <laughs> yeah. 
This is not exactly what I mean when I say, like, encourage during the message, okay? <laughs> so we're driving down the interstate for just a couple more moments. And finally, she says, you need to get over if you're going to get the exit. So right as I went to move over, sure enough, here comes a car in the other lane, kind of, you know, how cars will speed up on you to get by you. Now I can't get over. So I do what normal men do. I stomp the gas, and I pulled in front of the car, and I swerved over two lanes, and I took the exit. And Robin said to me, under her breath, not very loudly, but she said, I'm not saying a word. I'm not saying a word. Now, I just want to say this, because she's out of town today in New York. <laughs> it struck me that if you're not saying a word, you have to say words to say you're not saying a word. Okay? You're refuting what you're saying as you're saying it. So we decided to get therapy for this. We obviously need help, me with driving, and I don't know what kind of help she needs, but... The woman in this story, listen, speaks up. And fortunately, she does speak up. What has this to do with me, woman? It's interesting. Jesus doesn't give his mom an immediate response. Like, okay, mom, I'll take care of it. He says, my hour has not yet come. I hate to say this part of the message, but sometimes you will pray a prayer, friends, even a help prayer. Like, God help me. And you will not get the answer you were hoping for. Like, Jesus, it's my job. I need help. Or, Jesus, it's cancer and I need help. And, Jesus, you know, they're not coming back to me. Or, Jesus, my little child has lost their health. I don't know what it is that you've prayed or will pray, but sometimes you don't get the answer how and when you want them. But I do believe this. I believe that we're not yet at the end of the story. The hour has not yet come. And I do believe that despair is never your answer. I believe God is a God of love and loves to be our refuge and help, no matter how our particular circumstances turn out. I would love to have heard the tone of this. I would love to have seen the conversation that took place between mother and son here, because the next line in this story is just amazing. There's a world of information here. His mother said to the attendants, whatever he tells you to do, do it. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My time has come. She doesn't even answer Jesus back. She just looks at the servant. I'm not saying a word. <laughs> whatever he tells you to do, do it. Instead, she says this amazing sentence. Now, these are really kind of the orders for us today. This is kind of like the whole crux of the message. If you want to know what kind of relationship in which the help prayer makes sense with Jesus, here it is. Ready? Whatever he tells you to do, do it. If you want to see water turned into wine, if you want to see up there, come down here. If you want God involved in your ordinary life, in your ordinary everyday problems, if you want to live in the presence and the kingdom of God now, whatever Jesus tells you to do, do it. 
Love your neighbor, love your enemy, lay up treasures in heaven, care for the poor, seek first the kingdom of God, do unto others what you would have them do unto you, let your light so shine before others that they see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. People get really clueless sometimes about what kind of church what kind of church is Oasis? You know, are they this kind of church? Are they that kind of church? Let me tell you what kind of church we are. Whatever Jesus tells you to do, do it. That's what we are. People try to put labels on churches. It's really simple. Whatever Jesus tells us to do, we do it. Now, she doesn't understand why Jesus said what he said, why he hasn't done what she asked him to do, but her response is perfect. Whatever Jesus tells you to do, do it. Now, look at how the servants respond because this is amazing. Jesus doesn't say anything to his mom. He turns to the servants he's just spoken to and he gives them instructions. He says, fill the jars with water. Now, notice their response. I love this. So they filled the jars to the brim. Now, how many of you think they had to fill them to the brim? Well, let me say this. You try hauling 150 gallons of water. I'm looking for any reason I can think of not to haul 150 gallons of water. They didn't have a clue what was going on. They didn't know about who Jesus was. They could have easily filled the jars two-thirds of the way full. But here's the deal. If they did, they would have missed 50 gallons of miracle. They did what good servants do. They just obeyed him with their whole heart. They did what was asked of them, and then they went beyond. They filled it to the brim. And Jesus has to be beaming because inside he knows, I'm getting ready to turn H2O into Merlot. <laughs> There's a great saying, an old saying. It says, bring God a thimble, he'll probably fill a thimble. Bring God a bucket, he'll probably fill a bucket. If you want to make God your helper, it's not about starting with whatever it is you happen to want. The place to begin, friends, is God, not where, you know, here's what I demand in my life, and here's my litmus test for you, God. If you do this, then I'll believe in you and I'll trust you. No, it starts simply with whatever you tell me to do, I'll do it. They fill it to the brim. So here's what I want to say to you about this week with this word help. This week, as you move toward the Easter season, only two weeks away now, don't just go through the motions. As a servant for the next several days, why not just, you know, fill it to the brim? Encourage somebody fully. Like, work hard at your job with all of your heart. Serve somebody in your home with delight instead of that grudging, pouting spirit. Give to God a gift that actually represents sacrifice on your part. Just ask God, God, would you help me be the kind of servant I want to be? And when you do, here's what happens. Maybe you get to be a part of a miracle. Maybe you get to see water turned into wine. Now, here's what I love about this story, too, is that the big shots don't have a clue how it happened. The master of the banquet doesn't know how it happened. The groom and maybe even the bride didn't know how it happened. The servants 
are the only ones who knew. It's the kingdom of God where the servants are the ones who know. It's the servants who obey with their whole hearts who know. Think about when they got home that night. And their spouse said to them, honey, anything interesting happened at work today? <laughs> Can you imagine how these people looked at Jesus and followed him after that day? Can you imagine when he was crucified and then resurrected? Can you imagine when they were old, old men or women and they're telling their children, I was there. I saw it. I got to help Jesus at the greatest wedding of all time. I did whatever he said, and I filled it to the brim. It's very interesting. I used to think this story was kind of like one of those frivolous miracles. <laughs> you know, I mean, when you think about the miracles of Jesus, there's some pretty heavy weight. I mean, you think about miracles, cleansing lepers, giving sight to the blind, feeding 5,000 people, raising Lazarus from the dead. I mean, those are like good, respectable miracles. But being like a heavenly wine distributor <laughs> for a family who's already wealthy enough to have servants at their wedding, it may seem a little superficial, but I don't think so at all. This story tells us something about Jesus. It tells us something about the kingdom. It tells us something about living everyday life and being dependent on God. See, John says it's the first sign, the first sign. Mary is hoping to avert disaster. They have no wine. And Jesus says, oh, we're going to go way beyond that, Mary. <laughs> he doesn't only make wine. He makes extraordinary wine. I don't know about you. I don't have a cultivated palate. I don't understand much about wine. I got a few friends, I admit, they're wine drinkers. But all I know about wine is if your wine bottle has an expiration date on it, it's not a great bottle of wine. That's about all I can tell you. Jesus makes the best wine anybody has ever tasted. But it's not just the quality. What's also remarkable is the quantity. Six huge stone jars, 150 gallons of wine. And this is why John says, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. You're hoping to avoid disaster, social embarrassment. You're just this low-level servant. You have no connection. And yet Jesus has a miracle waiting for you to be a part of it. I got to thinking about this this week. Jesus did a miracle, and a few dozen people probably were able to keep drinking. Now, in our day, in our day, millions of people have been enslaved by alcohol. For some people, some people in this very room right now, it has been hell on earth for you. It has ruined your life many, many times. But then there came a moment in your life where you found God and you found help and you admitted you needed help. And God does this miracle of enabling you to stop drinking. Not just that, some of you have experienced an even greater miracle and that's God using you to save other people who have had the same problem that you had. 
Listen, I don't care what problem it is. If it's drinking, if it's grief, addiction, anger, divorce, whatever you've gone through, God is not just wanting to help you. He's wanting to turn water into wine. He will use you to help other people. But it starts with one big, fantastic word, help. You see, the little miracle in this story is he turned water into wine. The big miracle it foretells is life drawn from its divine source. You see, at Cana, Jesus not only shares our grief, but he heals them. And you know he does that? He shares our joys to enhance them. He shared our life to make us more alive. See, salvation is not just this overcoming thing. It's not just the negating of death. It's actually the elevating of life. Let me say it this way, and I'll close. God has a miracle for you. I'm not kidding. It may not look like what you envision a miracle to look like. It not, may not be as grand and as, wow, as you think a miracle needs to be. But God has a miracle that is bigger and more extravagant than you can ever imagine. And it's bigger than, listen, houses and cars and stuff. That miracle is that one day you're going to see him. And one day you're going to be like him. And one day your life is going to have such joy and energy and confidence and peace. It will flow like wine. Listen, but it won't be enslaving you anymore. It won't be coming from a bottle. It's going to be like a hundred and proof spirit of God. We're two weeks now away from Easter, and I want to say this to you in closing. I hope this year that you will think about and really pray about and really ponder who you could invite to celebrate Easter Sunday with. We have this great miracle to offer people. The miracle of life, the miracle of Jesus, the awesomeness of his story and his message and his personhood. There was a quote this week that I heard again from a philosopher, Soren Kirchgarden. He had an observation that is very haunting. And it reminded me this week as we head toward Easter what happens in churches. Soren wrote this. He said, Christ turned water into wine, but the church has succeeded in doing something even more difficult it has turned wine into water. See, that's what happens when we do life without God. Without grace and without God, grace just turns into rules and goodness just becomes pride and faith just becomes excluding other people. We get grim and self-righteous. But here's what the help prayer does. The help prayer invites us to let go of all of our arrogance and all of our fear and all of our self-sufficiency and all of the illusion that we don't need anyone. Many of you remember Alex Haley. Alex Haley was the writer, the author of many books, but his probably best-known book was a book that was turned into a movie called Roots. And in his office... Alex Haley kept a picture 
of a turtle on a fence post. And when anybody would see that picture, they would ask him, Alex, why do you have that picture? He said, I'll tell you why. He said, anytime you see a turtle on a fence post, you know he had some help. He didn't get there on his own. I was thinking about that. When Jesus was a little boy, he would probably say to his mom, Mary, help me, mom. I mean, it's the first words a child really learns. Help me get dressed. Help me eat my food. Help me go potty. And our Savior humbled himself, the maker of the universe, to ask for help, even as something as simple as tying the laces of his sandals. And I was thinking about my dad this week. Now he's going through some things in his life personally with some physical things, mental things. And I thought about how as you get older, you really become like a child again. Help me get dressed and help me eat my food and help me go to the bathroom. And we're born needing help and we listen, we die needing help. And in between, friends, we fool ourselves into thinking that we don't need help. Here's our word today. Our word is help. With our whole hearts, we come to Jesus and we say, Jesus, whatever you tell me to do, I'll do, but I need your help.